Hello, and welcome to Spotlight On, the podcast that brings together business leaders, entrepreneurs, and experts covering a range of topics. I'm Nicholas Barton, founder and CEO of the Barton Partnership. We're an award-winning executive recruitment and consulting solutions firm, providing permanent search and independent consulting services across strategy, sustainability, and M&A, data and analytics, and transformation and change. Hello, and welcome to the Barton Partnership's Spotlight On podcast. I'm Ben Glitherow, Director of our Public Sector Practice. Joining me today is General Richard Nuji. Richard has earned international recognition for bringing the implications of climate change and sustainability to the defence and national security sectors. After a full operational career in the British Army, as his final role, he wrote a review of defence's approach to climate change and sustainability. He's now the non-exec director for climate change and net zero for the Ministry of Defence. Richard is also a CEO of a medical research charity, the Scarfree Foundation, chair of the Royal NAFI board, director of his own strategic advisory company, and a strategic advisor to a number of consultancies and organisations. Richard, thanks for joining us today. I think if you could start by sharing a brief overview of your career journey today, please. I think that would be the most logical place to start. Yeah, I was a soldier. I retired from the army uh, two years ago. Uh, that career, if you like, had three parts. One was as an operational soldier. I deployed to various countries 10 times during my career, both to Iraq and Afghanistan. I spent nearly two years in Afghanistan. And also the other half of it was in uh, sort of personnel or what most people call HR. Ended up as the chief of defence people which is a, um, if you like, the, the global HR director for defence. And that was that was quite fun because I, it uh, involved looking after or having responsibility for all serving personnel, their families, all civil servants within defence, and all veterans at the time, although that's now moved on to somebody else. So a really interesting role, and I did that for four years. In that four years, I was on the executive board of defence, and I noticed that climate change, sustainability, adaptation, mitigation wasn't really mentioned. And so at the end of that four years, I turned around and said I would write a report. And this is really the third bit of my career, which is now continued. I would write a report on the effect of climate change on defence and the effect of defence on climate change. And that was produced in 2020. And since then, I've been working very hard, actually, to try and bring the attention of ministries of defence around the world to what they can do with climate change and what they should do about climate change, but also understand the national security implications of climate change. Yes, and a smooth sort of transition into that. And the, the role with the head role, the head of sort of HR, as you put it, a huge role that must have been. Yeah, I was sort of responsible, if you like, for the policy for three and a half million people in the country when you include all the veterans and very, very diverse. Now, of course, most veterans don't need any looking after at all. They're they're extremely capable, but some do. Uh, Some of those coming back from Afghanistan and Iraq, particularly so wounded, injured and sick, as we call them or used to call them. And um, the families of people who've been badly wounded or, or killed, sadly. So there was that side of it, but there was also also, all the serving personnel, how do you deal with the policies of serving personnel and their families? And how do you deal with civil servants, which are, uh, you know, they're on very different terms of service, terms and conditions of their roles? How do you deal with all of that as well? So it was a very varied role and very interesting. What are some of the most valuable lessons that you've learned and how can they be applied in the broader context of leadership and management? Well, I think uh, leadership is you don't get to sort of 
or I would hope you don't get to senior rank in the military without having uh, some sort of leadership skills. And so whilst I actually don't like sort of lists of characteristics of leaders, I, I, I think every leader is slightly different. There are various sort of aspects of leadership, which I think I've learned, particularly um, and of management. I did a lot of change management in my time. If you like, one person described me as a bit of an entrepreneur within defence, always trying to look for new ways of doing things, trying to come up with new ideas, all the way from when I was a very junior officer um, serving in Northern Ireland. Actually, um, how do you do things differently? And I used to uh, used to do different things to try and um, catch out the IRA. And so actually, there's a, the, the, there's a bit about how do you lead? And the way you lead on a battlefield is different to the way that you lead in an office. Um, so you need agility of leadership. You need to be completely in sync, if you like, with your context and and understanding what is required in terms of leadership of different types of people. It's one thing leading uh, military people, and it's not so much that you can order them to do something. Ultimately, you can, but I always used to say that if you've had to order somebody to do some something you have failed as a leader because they should want to do it and and so but but with civil servants you can't order them to do it and so learning the different contexts learning the different experiences of of the people you are leading is a really important part of leadership and the sort of emotional eq as it's called emotional responsibility i think that's sort of largely what I've learned and the different styles of leadership i've had to adopt in order to try and make headway in defense no, good. And, and I think both civil service and within the army as well are legacy structures, aren't they? Different ways of doing things that when you're coming in from a transformation point of view, it must be quite hard. Sometimes people are quite connected when it comes down to change. People are quite connected to the way things have always been done. I think it's understanding how do you get to people. I've been doing a sort of bit of work on sort of change management, and that sounds awful. But but you know, why is it that some people can understand what you're trying to do, uh, can agree with it, but still resist it? And you know, there's there's a whole groove of people, very often who are not at the top who are trying to build the change into a system and not at the bottom who don't know any better uh, because they've just joined, if you like, the sort of youngsters who've just joined the organisation. It's everybody in between. How do you persuade them and what is their concern about the change and trying to understand the psychology of those individuals? And very often it's nothing to do with the change itself. It's all to do with how they perceive the change yes. um, uh, and 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 how they perceive it as a threat, not just to their job, that may or may not be the case, but a threat to their net worth as an individual, a, a threat to their, their value, if you like, to the organisation. And I think that seeing things like that is actually a really interesting way of trying to understand change management and reassuring them. I think very often that what you're doing is 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 not going to throw the baby out with the bathwater. It's not going to destroy the culture of, of of what you're doing. It's not going to, if you like, damage some of the traditions as long as those traditions are valid and worthwhile having. And I'm I'm very much a, you know if a tradition is there for the sake of the tradition and it doesn't actually serve any purpose at all. In fact, all it does is drag you back centuries. Then it's not worth it. Most of our traditions, I would argue, and most of the things that hold our culture in place are there for a valid reason. You know, um, and take one tiny example, the rank structure of the armed forces is uh, completely appropriate on a battlefield or in a crisis environment because you do have to make sure that things follow a certain pattern uh, of leadership, uh, but they're totally inappropriate 
for trying to run a big government department. But but what's our, you know, in the military, what's our, our, our mission, if you like, what's our purpose? It's to protect the nation and, and fight if we have to. Um, obviously, we would rather not, but if we have to, we do. And so our, so the tradition of ranks, for example, and it's just one tiny example, is there because of our primary purpose. It doesn't fit every environment but it does fit the primary purpose. No, no, I don't think that makes sense. And I think just to go back to what you were saying around the individual within, um, you know, within change situations, and I think for large transformation programs, I think that's why now evident, you know, an evidence-based approach and the importance of data in, in these sorts of things to be able to sort of demonstrate or role play to somebody, this is why we want to do what we want to do. This is why it will make it more effective. But And, and if it's putting that information into different ways for the individual based on what their fear might be or their concern to hopefully be able to demonstrate prior to to the transformation why you think that's so important and why that's in the strategy. I think that definitely is our ally with that, you know, when, when trying to put together big transformation programmes. I was responsible for the same for three and a half million people, and you can't go to each one of them individually. And I'm, I'm, um, I, I used to joke, I'm, I'm really relieved not everybody, not every one of them writes to me every day. You know, it's a question of actually pinpointing those who are genuinely concerned and are, if you like, almost causing causing issues because of their concerns, and actually going and talking to them. I, I was a great advocate where possible of getting senior people out to talk and not just give a talk and then leave. I think that's awful. Give a talk and then answer questions. And and if, if you've only got 10 minutes, only talk for five minutes and allow five minutes of questions. But don't, you know, don't use up all the oxygen in the room with your own speech. Try and allow people to to question you. That can sometimes be very uncomfortable, but actually I think it's a really important way of expressing the true worth of what you're trying to do. And your credibility, I think, as well within that room. And when you talk to people to show, look, you know, I'm confident in why we're, we're doing what we're doing and what we've asked and giving people the chance to sort of talk back out. No, I think you're right. So you, you earned international recognition for bringing the implications of climate change and, and sustainability to the defence and national security sectors. What motivated you to shift your focus towards the climate crisis and its implications? So I've been I've been interested in this subject for quite a long time. Funny enough, I read I read anthropology at university, and and anthropology is the study of how the environment shapes humans um, in in very simple terms, uh, and 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 the growth of humans and the evolution of humans and Homo sapiens sapiens, if you like, how how that happened, and it was it was very closely linked to the environment in which you operate. So, for example, Eskimos have have huge fat deposits on their eyelids, so that when they're asleep, their eyes don't freeze up. That's not something that we need. It is something that they need. And, and so there's there's an example of how the environment shaped humans and to a certain extent shaped our behavior. So going from that to how we are shaping the environment is it's just the other side of the coin. It's just a different part of our, if you like. So I've always been interested in this subject. But two two things really happened. One, one is being in Iraq uh, in 2003 without any air conditioning for a period of the summer where the wind comes up the Gulf. It's two weeks of the year. It's called the cooker in Iraqi language. And most of the wind comes from the north. 50 weeks of the year, the wind comes from the north and it dries out over the desert of Iraq. For two years, it comes up from the Gulf. And so it's very, very humid and very hot. And we got up to about 55 degrees, very humid indeed. That's almost impossible to live in. And so um, it struck me that actually, if this is what climate, and that wasn't climate change per se, that's just a really unpleasant place to live. Yeah. But if climate change is going to make more and more of the world into that sort of environment, it is going to have consequences. So 
That was one sort of driver. What what are those consequences going to be? And I only looked at it from a military perspective. I, I, I've looked much wider now. But the other side of it, as I said, was, was climate change wasn't being talked about. And I think the military both has opportunity and also threat from climate change. And so I took the opportunity at the end of my career to turn around and propose a report that would address this issue because nobody else was doing so. And it was a report that was received extremely well. And I think it's because, it's not because of the way I wrote it, um, I'm not a very good writer. I think it's because it was a military person writing it in military language. Um, and so militaries could immediately understand this. And they, you know, I'm I'm not, on the one hand, a rabid environmentalist who, who says sort of stop eating all meat or don't ever fly again. That wouldn't be particularly good for the Royal Air Force. And, and on the other hand, I'm not somebody who is so military that uh, they say, well, climate change has nothing to do with us. I'm in between saying, no, climate change has a major impact on us and offers us major opportunity. We ought to find out what and why. And that's what I sort of started doing. And you, and you also recently co-published a paper uh, in The Times on the necessity of introducing a centre for climate security at the heart of government. Are you able to just provide some insights around what that entailed? I've spent a little bit of time and, and you know, I, I haven't gone to the dictionary for a, for a definition. But what is national security? If you start from the premise that government's first duty is uh, the national security or the security of the nation, well, what does that mean in real terms? It, it is obvious if you have somebody like Putin invading your country, it is very obvious what national security is. But for us in this country, what does what does national security actually look like? And, and if you boil it right down, in my view, you come to national security is about preserving our way of life. We have fought wars, two world wars and other wars, in order to preserve our way of life, because we saw a threat to the way we, we as individuals within this country wanted to run our country. And we wanted to stop that. So we fought the First Second World War. We actually fought, in inverted commas, the Cold War for precisely that reason. We didn't want a Soviet-style organisation and Soviet-style society in the UK. And we were prepared to fight for that. So national security is about preserving our way of life. So then you look at what will climate change do to our national security? And I think that that question is not being asked often enough. And certainly the answer is, isn't being looked at by government. And I think it should, because I think that government should look at all aspects of security, not just the traditional uh, force on force, an army invading us threat, not cyber threats, which is the latest idea. If we thought there was a threat from space, we would do something about it. So why aren't we looking at a threat from climate? There's very little we can do about global climate. We can do our bit and we must do our bit. But actually, we're 2% of the world's emissions. Uh, you know, so, so, so the majority of the world is going to have an impact on us. Therefore, it's going to um, affect our national security, I would argue. So what I was arguing for in that Times article with Sir Alok Sharma was that we should be looking to create a, uh, a fusion centre or a cell that informs government on national security and how it is affected by climate change, very specifically how it's affected by climate change, but also to a certain extent what the opportunities are what, trying to combat climate change. And is that something that you think it was well received or that, that there's potential for that to 
I think, yes, I, I, I think it's growing in momentum. And in fact, next week, I'm, I'm hoping to be talking to the Cabinet Office uh, precisely about this subject. And I think it's it, it's one where, interestingly, Canada, which has had a heat dome and has had um, those horrendous wildfires this year, has already set up a national centre for security, uh, climate security. Uh, Belgium, um, we hear about the great floods in Germany last year. Um, actually, those floods um, had as much impact in Belgium and it cost Belgium a huge amount of money and, and lost a number of lives. So they've set up a national security centre for climate change. And so I would argue that we're slightly behind the power curve because it ha- climate change hasn't materially damaged us in the way that it's damaged those two countries. And, and therefore, it's, it's quite difficult to get traction. But I think that we are beginning to get traction in government, yes. Yeah. And, and I think probably there's an argument then for the next step to be if everybody is doing their own individual version that with allies in other countries that we work alongside, that there is the opportunity then for everybody to come together to work on the same problem as a collective then. It would be the next step further forward from that, you would say. Absolutely. And and, and what Canada's actually done is set up a centre of excellence for the whole of NATO rather than just for Canada. Right. I mean, it's, it's it's a Canadian entity. And I think we each NATO country is sending one or two people to it, but but it's a Canadian entity. And, and there, NATO, obviously, the world's most successful military alliance, is thinking about this quite seriously. I think that that's a very good step indeed, and we'll take part in that. Brilliant. Thank you for that. Looking through your sort of profile and everything that you're sort of involved with, strategic advisor, NED, mentor, chair, trustee of several organisations and charities, reflecting on your career, what sort of accomplishments or contribution are you most proud of and how has it shaped your vision for the future? There's lots actually I'm quite proud of. I'm, I I don't believe in legacies, but I'm quite proud of, of a number of things. One one of the things actually, I um, I was out in Afghanistan for 14 months in 2013 and 2014, and did the coordinated, if you like, the withdrawal of NATO at that point from Afghanistan. So removing some 50,000 troops from Afghanistan, most of them American, of course, and I was responsible for the sort of coordination of all of that and actually writing the plan and making sure that we got everybody out safely. And it's the the important point about that was not you can you can remove troops from anywhere but it was removing troops and leaving until a little bit later a government in place that was able to hold the ring against the Taliban and and for all sorts of reasons it went very badly wrong in 2021 but but I think there's um, or was it 22 but but I think there's quite proud of the fact that we got everybody out safely but the but the, I suppose the thing I'm most proud of is the legacy, and as I say, it wasn't done for legacy reasons, but the legacy I've left with uh, the Ministry of Defence and other defence ministries around the world in thinking about climate change differently. Its time had come. I was fortunate uh, that the world is, is, is reacting to climate change much more than it used to be. But But the reality is that militaries around the world are now picking up the baton and saying, so how does this affect us? And and I've spoken to numerous countries about this. I got got the first ever serving defence secretary and and the NATO secretary general at COP26. That's never happened before. In fact, the defence ministers did meet outside Paris, but did not meet in COP itself. They were not welcome. And we managed to persuade COP that actually it was worth having the defence ministers there and raising the profile of security and climate change nexus. And so I think that I'm I'm really proud that we have, as a result of my report, which went around the world, actually, it has started to change people's thinking about climate change from a, from a, from a sector that probably produces 
uh, well, I don't know, we produce 3% of, of UK's emissions in, in the Ministry of Defence, something like that. It is a significant player. It also has the ability to do right and and to have that sector starting to think to do right. Interestingly, it has opened up avenues. So I'm talking on a panel in, in Brazil, I should say virtually, so I'm not, not flying out there, but in Brazil later next month, specifically to talk about climate and security to the Brazilians. That's a fascinating development, which I had hoped for, but never believed would happen. Okay. I know when you were talking about the size of things, I, mean, I think when we spoke previously, you were talking about the size of the property portfolio within the military and it being third or fourth in the country, was it you were saying? Yeah, I mean, I think we're the second or third largest landowner in the country. Um, you know, 100,000 buildings are MAD buildings. You know, some, some are tiny, some are huge, but but um, to be able to decarbonise 100,000 buildings, um, even if we're car- decarbonising 1,000 a year, which is, you know, three a day, that's going to take us 100 years. That's yeah. the scale of the problem that the MAD has. Yeah, no, I understand. So with the on the other side, on the strategic advisory side, what sort of advice do you when you're working with startups and things for, for leaders that want to integrate climate conscious practices into their business and operations? Are there sort of go-tos that you start with or is it really dependent on who you're working with? Or So I, I have a, a very simple mantra and it's the same I used for the MOD. And, and that's two, two things. One is uh, there's only one person you need to persuade in any business, in any startup, uh, and that's the finance director. Um, in whichever guise the finance director comes from. What does that lead to? It leads to the idea that actually this is what to make business sense in a business. Being being green for the sake of green will will lead to greenwashing. Um, you can have all the lofty ideals in the world, but actually if the finance director turns around and says it'll kill the company, it's not going to happen. So finding the way to persuade the finance director, and that means that what you've got to do is look at every single aspect of the company and through through what I call a sustainability lens. Look through everything you do, start, start small, grow uh, and scale up, but look through everything and then turn around and say, how can I change that that will have less impact on the on the natural environment or on the on our emissions and start there so but but it's got to be to advantage the way that I sold it in the MOD is two things that we will get military advantage out of adopting new technologies and it will save us money two very simple things but and uh, but but important well every business can go down the same route what will give you competitive advantage against your competitors or against your peers and what will save money and if you do if you develop things in those terms then actually no finance director is going to say no and it becomes an integral part of the company rather than some i loathe the phrase esg forgive me because <laughs> e- e- esg first of all it's become a bucket for everything that nobody really knows what to do with but also by calling it ESG, you end up with a separate entity that is trying to batter. And I'll give you one one very, very military example of why this doesn't work. If you uh, look at how to influence somebody in the military, there are two ways of doing it. You can fire a gun at them, or you can try and persuade them. They're very, very different and they have very, very different skills to try and do both. If you look at an enemy and your immediate thought is, right, how how to fire a gun at them, to put it bluntly, the idea that you might be able to persuade them, and I'm thinking particularly about Taliban and things like that, the idea you might be able to persuade them after you've already worked out how to fire the gun at them, it's never going to win. Never. 
But if when you're looking at the process, right, I used to call it fusing at source. If you fuse at source and you say, okay, there are two options here, we're going to work up both of them together. What we found is that 50% of what we did, instead of firing a gun, we would try and influence through persuasion. It's exactly the same idea. It's exactly the same thing. That If you have ESG as a separate entity, it will never win. If you have it as integral to the business, it will, it will have far more success. Thank you. That's really insightful. And, and finally, do you feel optimistic that we'll actually achieve our goal of net zero by 2050? I'm a born optimist. I, I suppose as a soldier, you have to be. I would call myself a, um, a, a pragmatic optimist. And I know some people don't like it, but, but pragmatic because actually, yes, I'm an optimist. You have to be as a soldier. If you're going to go into a battlefield, you have to believe you're coming off it uh, and not, in a, you know, not, not wounded or killed. But, but actually, you make your own luck. And you make your own luck by by looking for opportunity, for for identifying opportunity, and that's that's what I try and do. So yes, I am optimistic, but it but but it's about making your own luck. We have to do everything we can. I I, I described it to the defence secretary when I was talking to him as we have to throw a double six every day. Yeah. Now. I would then go on and say, I didn't say this to him, and I would go on to turn around and say, but we can load the dice. We can load the dice to throw your double six every day if you really start thinking about it, if you embrace new technology, if you if you innovate and experiment. I am absolutely confident we'll get there because I think that some of the developments that are taking place are really revolutionary. And I think that by 2035, 2040, it will be so obvious that the world is in a really difficult space that we will be throwing the kitchen sink at it and we'll try and get there. Just to try and get ahead of it as much as possible, isn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. Definite. You know, it's more about, like you said, preloading the dice to to make sure we get what we want or get the outcomes happening sooner rather than later. Absolutely. Well, good. Thanks ever so much for that. Thanks for today. It sounds like you're not slowing down, very busy with Brazil next and everything else internally and with the government. So I really appreciate you coming on today to just sort of talk through some of this. I think it's a different idea of what we look at things and the, the military side of things isn't something that's always considered with this, nor how big it is when you look at the size of the portfolio and, and, and you know, when you're talking 100 years, even at a, a you know, a, a pace of, that many buildings a day so no it's definitely something that needs to be addressed well thank you thank you for the opportunity i think i think it's important people understand as much as possible that actually the military are playing their part to a certain extent and probably not as much as people would wish but also that we are part of the solution not part of the problem brilliant thanks ever so much for that thank you, thank you.